in Jesus' name, amen. Well, any children here, uh, kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to children's church. And I would invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to our text this morning, which is Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 56. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1045. Luke chapter 22, verse uh, 54, actually. Page 1045 in the Pew Bible. And let me read our passage and then we'll dig into it. Luke chapter 22, verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not. Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So the question I'm wondering about in light of this text of Peter disowning Jesus is, can a Christian blow it so badly that the Lord will no longer forgive or restore the person? Uh, Can we... Uh, turn away from Christ as followers of Christ and fail so badly that essentially the Lord's like, you know what, you're out of the game. You're done. I'm pulling you out. And you're damaged goods. You're on the sideline. And I've, I've just had it with you. And that's it. You know, How far is too far for Christians when it comes to following the Lord? Is it possible to have forgiveness and redemption even after you know, huge moral failures? Uh, this was an issue that the early church wrestled with uh, in the early 300s A.D., there was an emperor, Roman emperor, named Diocletian. And Diocletian unleashed a fierce persecution against the church. Uh, people were tortured. People were martyred for their faith. And not every Christian withstood that kind of pressure. Uh, some of them recanted their faith. They apostatized. Even some priests and some bishops, you know, under the pressure of torture and the threat of death, in, in the heat of the moment, they gave in and they, they denied the Lord. Well, what happened was, after the persecution ended, a lot of these apostates wanted to come back into the church. And they were repentant, and they said, you know, we failed and we want to be restored. And that divided the church between the majority of the church who said, yeah, we should let them back in and we should restore them and forgive them. But there's another group in the church that were known as the Donatists. And the Donatists stood firm and they said, if these guys rejected Christ, they're out. 
And some of the priests who had rejected Christ were forgiven and restored. But the Donatists said, no, those are illegitimate priests and we should not let them back into the church. And, and any sacraments they administer are invalid spiritually. So this big division took place in the church. And, and it was a question, you know, how far was too far? And the church was divided over that issue. And people wrestle with that today. Uh, I once corresponded with a guy who was uh, incarcerated uh, for a, a crime he'd committed and uh, he was, you know, claimed to be a Christian. Every once in a while, we'd trade a letter every several weeks, and and he uh, was wrestling with this. He's like, "Have I gone too far? Am I done? Is it all over? You know, when I get out of prison, a, am I going to do the same thing? And b, am, am I can I be restored and be used by the Lord in some way, or is my life permanently dented so that nobody's going to, you know, take me off the shelf?" Um, Christians I talk to who've been through the pain of divorce, even a divorce that's really biblically justifiable, you might say still wrestle with that sense of failure. Like, am I done? Am I too damaged for the Lord to use? Or it could be anything. It can be, you know, the different trials that people go through and the mistakes people make, whether it's a a child out of wedlock or a a decision somebody makes in the workplace that was just really bad and it tanks their whole career and they have to find something else to do. Or maybe it's not even the big, uh, you might say, spectacular, public, in front of everybody kind of Failures. Sometimes, for Christians, it's, it's like a, a chronic lukewarmness. Someone who's just been complacent in their faith, and they haven't grown for maybe years. And they're wondering, you know, maybe I've just been such a lukewarm, lazy Christian for so long, I don't even know if God's sick of me. And he's like, I'm just done with you, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, and I'm tired, and, and the person is laid aside. And they think, there's no hope for me. I'm just stuck. And so how far is too far? And that's why I think that, that story is so interesting because here we have Peter. This is one of the, you know, the disciples of Jesus. He's been with him for three years. And he's not just any disciples. You read through Luke and the other Gospels. Peter kind of emerges as a first among equals. He's a leader among the twelve. He's always the guy who's speaking up for everybody. And he's the first one to, to speak his mind. And Jesus takes Peter and John up the Mount of Transfiguration. He takes Peter and John and leaves the other disciples and takes them in to see the healing of Jairus' daughter. And so Peter has this leadership kind of role. And here in this story, I mean, this is a spectacular wipeout that Peter does. And is there hope for Peter? Can he be restored? And I don't know what's more shocking in this story, the denial that Peter makes or the fact that when I read it, I can totally see myself in that situation. Let's look at the story. Verse 54, Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance. All right, so just quick, let's remember where we are in the story. It's Thursday night. It's the night of uh, Passover. They've had the Last Supper together. They've gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. Into the Garden of Gethsemane comes Judas, the betrayer, who betrays Jesus. Jesus is arrested, and all the disciples run away. And now Jesus is being taken by the mob in uh, to stand before the high priest. Uh, the high priest in those days was a guy named Caiaphas. And the high priest would have been like the Supreme Just, the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, if you want to make an analogy. Uh, the, the main ruling body of Judaism was called the Sanhedrin. It was a group of 70 men who ruled over all matters religious and secular for the Jewish people. And the high priest was the, I guess you'd call him the chairman. He was the head of that group. 
So Jesus is going before the head guy of Judaism. And as Jesus is led away and all the disciples scatter, it says that Peter followed at a distance. It was pretty gutsy. I mean, it's kind of classic Peter, right? He's going to go with Jesus now. Like Peter's there when Jesus is arrested. Peter pulls out his sword and chops off some guy's ear. And even after that, he has the guts to, to track behind and go follow to see where this is leading. And I don't know if he put on like those glasses with the, you know, the nose and the mustache or what, but somehow he blends in and tries to go along with this group. And so, verse 55, when they had kindled a fire, and the they there are the guys who arrested Jesus, when that mob that arrested Jesus kindled a fire and sat down in the middle of the courtyard, Peter sat down with them. So this is like March. It's kind of cool, right? Passover takes place in March, maybe April, somewhere around there. It's cool at night. It's cold. They're lighting a fire. Everyone's gathering around. And this is where Peter pulls his stunt. And so while the soldiers are inside the house, roughing Jesus up and striking him, Peter is outside the house, stabbing him in the back. Let's look at the three denials. First, 56. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. Those four words, I don't know him. You know, it's like, ugh, stab me in the heart. Did you just say that about Jesus? You don't know him? Come on. You know, that's like the guy who goes on the business trip and uh, he's there eating in the hotel after the conference or whatever and he's it's tired and he's about to go to bed and then there's some other woman in the, the you know, thing and she's kind of looking at him and so he puts his hand under the table and slips off the wedding ring. You know, that's what it's like. Saying, you know, I don't know my wife. I'm not married. I'm available. You know, he's like saying, I don't know Jesus. He's disowning his Lord. He's breaking this fundamental relationship he has with the Lord. And what's so shocking is how quickly Peter gives in. It's not like Peter had been tortured for ten days. You know? It's not even like it was someone threatening. It's a servant girl. You're one of them, aren't you? Ah! No, I'm not. Snap! He falls. There wasn't even any pressure applied. It was just some young girl saying, I think you're one of the disciples. And Peter breaks. And it gets worse. Verse 58. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. So not only has he denied the Lord, now he's also denied any association with the disciples of whom he has kind of emerged as a de facto leader. You know, what happens in the military? if you turn on your commanding officer and you also betray all the guys who are under you? It's called treason. What do they do to people who commit treason in the military? Or imagine if you were a CEO of a company and uh, on Friday you did an interview with the newspaper and in that interview you trashed all of the board members who were over you and you trashed all the VPs underneath you. You know, and then you walk into... To their Monday, and everyone's seen the article. You know what's going to happen to you? I mean, you're done. That's it. You don't do that. This is basic loyalty. So he's he's punted on Jesus. He's punted on all these other guys, and then he, he goes the whole way and denies his whole past with Jesus. Verse 59. This is the third denial. About an hour later, another asserted, "Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is 
a Galilean. They could tell by his accent. They talk different in the north and the south, just like today. Accents around the country, you can tell where someone's from by their accent. They could tell he was a Galilean. So Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And so now he's denied his the whole Galilean background. So the whole three years or so that he's been with Jesus, he denies it all. He denies all of the long days they've spent hiking around the desert, all of the teaching, all of the miracles, all of the missionary journey. He's like, I don't have anything to do with that. I don't even know what it is you're talking about. He's denied everything. Everything. And we just look at that. It's like, how could he do that? And yet, isn't that what we find in the Bible? When you read the stories of the heroes of the Bible, the Bible is just so honest about the failures of the great heroes. We read the story of Abraham today. Here's Abraham, this great man of God, who has so much faith that he's willing to leave Mesopotamia and travel all the way over to Palestine. That was a huge step of faith. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. We read that. And of course we know that it was through his offspring, Jesus, that God brought the blessing to the whole world. Uh, God says to Abraham, I'm going to take care of you. Abraham builds altars to the Lord. He's this man of faith. And then he goes down to Egypt. And he totally loses it. He goes to Egypt and he's like, alright, tell him you're my sister. Let's not say you're my wife because I'm scared. I don't know what they're going to do with me. And this man of faith suddenly stops trusting God. And all this stuff happens down in Egypt. It's a disgrace. Right in the middle of the story, he goes from good to bad. And, and that's how the heroes are in the Bible. And by the way, one of the reasons I find the Bible so authentic, that, that I don't, this doesn't read like a religious propaganda book. This isn't like somebody trying to just promote their religion as they made up a bunch of stories. If you're going to promote your religion, you don't trash all the heroes. <laughs> that's what the Bible is. It's very honest about the people who are called by God. And so it just, it feels, it rings true to me as, as I've read it uh, over and over. And, and so here's this one too. Peter, He's like the main guy. And look how in graphic detail Luke tells the story of Peter's abysmal crash. And so we say, how could this happen? No. I know how it can happen. Because I do the same thing. (laughs) I understand Peter. It's shocking, but when I'm really honest, I'm like, yeah, can I turn like that? Yeah. In fact, I have. We've all failed the Lord in different ways. Sometimes spectacular, sometimes small, and no one knows. But we've all dropped the ball with the Lord. I mean, haven't you denied the Lord before? Um, haven't you ever been in conversations with people, and maybe it's friends or it's coworkers or someone, and, and somehow the conversation turns and they just start trashing God, and they start going on about how you know stupid it is to believe in God, and there's all these great bestsellers out in the New York Times list today about how. You know, God is not great and dismissing God and all these books. And, and they trash the church and they trash Christians and morality. And they even talk about Jesus and how he was just a, a good teacher. But, you know, whatever. And, and haven't you sometimes just stood there silently and didn't say anything? Like, speak up for Jesus. <laughs> We've got to stop being wimps for Jesus. And, and, and we, it's like everyone else can go off about what they don't believe. But we feel afraid to say what we do believe. And it doesn't mean you have to be rude or pushy or preachy or judgmental or condescending or, you know, anything like that. But we do have to speak up and say, well, actually, you know, this is my take on it. And we need to stand up for Jesus. And we don't do it. 
You say, why don't you do it? Well, you know, I don't want to scare people off and come across as a Bible thumper. I'm trying to build a relationship with this person. Oh, why are you building the relationship? Well, I want to love them and be able to share the gospel with them. Well, hello. <laughs> that was the opportunity. <laughs> but we're doing some, you know, we do a relational evangelism, but it's all relational and no evangelism. And so somewhat you have to open your mouth and take a risk. And, well, what if they stop liking me? Well, what if? Jesus told us that, that not everybody would embrace the gospel. And, and so it's a denial of Christ. And I think this is hard for us as, as New Englanders, and even though I'm not a New Englander by birth, I, I, I resonate with the privatism of New Englanders. I just find myself like that. I like to keep things you know, to myself and my life. And, and that's a very much a, a New England value, is we don't talk about things that are personal. And we keep things to ourselves. And some of you were told as kids, religion is a personal, private thing you don't talk about. It's something that you keep to yourself. But I'll tell you what, people. We can't keep Jesus private. You know, he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. You don't keep him private. He's the Savior of the world. You can't keep that private. That's not a personal thing. That's not a personal issue. He's, he's not just personal and private. He's the Lord. And so we have to speak up for him. And so it's so funny in our culture is we talk about the things we probably should keep private. And we keep private the things we should probably talk about. You know, everyone talks about their sex lives. Like, I don't want to hear that. I don't care about Paris Hilton. Keep it to yourself. That's private. But we've mixed that up. People talk about money. It's like, keep your money issues to yourself. Or talk about it with your financial advisor. But we talk about all the stuff we shouldn't talk about. And we're told to keep private the things that we should be talking about, like the meaning of life, and is there a God, and did he have a son? These are huge things that we should be debated, and it should not be shushed when you're in a college classroom because it's viewed as inappropriate or whatever. And so we need to stand up for Jesus, but not just with our lips. We can also deny Jesus, of course, with our lifestyle. And I don't know what's worse. Is it worse to just be quiet, or is it worse to blab about Jesus and then totally undercut your message with a life that contradicts the message. I'm not, I was trying to figure out which of those is a worse way to deny the Lord. Um, and, and that's another thing we have to look at too. Do we deny Jesus with our lifestyle? Um, okay, you know, do personal application. I'll do it too. Is there an area in my life or your life where our, our lives don't really match our profession of faith? Where we talk about being a Christian, but in this area, maybe with certain people you hang around or in certain circumstances, you find yourself behaving in ways that just don't harmonize with the claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we probably all have some different dimensions or scenarios in our life where that happens. And so maybe that's where we need to say, I've got to stop denying Jesus with how I live. And if I'm going to be a follower, I need to be a follower and be serious about it and not just be nominal or, or superficial. Because we all know what it's like to fall like Peter. We all know what it's like to deny the Lord. And look what happens when Peter denies him, verse 60. This is the brutal part. Just as he was speaking, verse 60, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. You know, when I was studying this passage, the verse that really got me was verse 61. That was the one that just grabbed my heart. The Lord turned and looked 
straight at Peter. Now, what a moment. What a moment. Where here's Peter and he's you know, denying it. I'm not one of them. And, and he looks over and maybe Jesus was in the courtyard. Maybe Jesus was walking by a door. But they were in the same house. He was right there. And you could just see Jesus looking over at him. And Peter going, oh, he said it, and I did it, and I said I would never do it, and I still did it. I can't believe it. And he goes outside and weeps bitterly. And that's the other side of this that compounds the pain of it, is not only do I fail the Lord, but he knows it. He sees it all. He sees every failure I've had, every time I've betrayed him, every time I've denied him, whenever my lips fail to speak his name when I should, uh, you know, which happens. He sees that. He hears my silence. He hears my denials. He sees us in public. He sees us in private. He sees the most private thoughts in our minds. To think that the Lord is looking at us. To feel the gaze of the Lord upon our lives that He sees through us. is you know, It's devastating. And maybe if I reflected on that more, I might respond like Peter does more often that he went outside and wept bitterly. Which again raises the question that I asked in the beginning, if we could return to that. So how far is too far? Is it possible to so blow it like this, with like Peter, and, and have any hope of redemption? Or are we damaged goods and we're done and you know it's like a product that's bent and the, the makers just throw it in the trash because they can't sell a product like that? Are we, are we totally damaged? And the amazing thing is when you go to the book of Acts which, as you know, is the second volume. of Luke wrote two books. He wrote Luke, which is the story of Jesus, and then Acts, which is the story of the early church right after Jesus. When you go to the book of Acts, for the first 11 chapters, who is the hero of that book? Peter! He's the man! He's, he's amazing in the book of Acts. And somehow he's restored. Uh, well, you know, the real hero is the Lord and the Holy Spirit. But humanly speaking, who's leading the, the charge of the early church? Peter is out in front being used by the Lord in powerful ways. Check it out. Look at, uh, let's just turn to Acts. I don't have time to go through every Peter story in Acts. In fact, maybe that's a homework assignment this week. Uh, take your Bibles this week and read through Acts chapters 1 to 11. And look how Peter shines. Just go through and look for all the Peter stories. He's everywhere. Demands ever. Acts chapter 2. Let's go to his big debut. Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is now ascended back to heaven. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. When the Holy Spirit comes, all kinds of weird things happen. People speak in different languages. People are praising God. And the crowds are gathering around saying, what is going on? And no one understands it. Some people think the disciples are drunk. And there's all these different theories. And so Peter gets up and he's the one who preaches the first evangelistic sermon after Jesus has been raised and he preached it to the crowd. So verse 14, Then Peter stood up, chapter 2, verse 14, with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And he goes on from verse 15 onward to explain uh, what is going on. And he preaches about Christ. He preaches about Jesus being the Messiah, about Jesus' resurrection. And finally, turn to verse 36. This is how he ends his sermon. This is how Peter, the wimpy denier, ends his sermon. Listen how strong this is. He says in verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, 
both Lord and Christ. Wait, that's, woo! That's a good sermon. And all this good stuff in between. I didn't have a chance to read to you. How did the people respond when the people heard this? They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what happens as a result of the sermon? Look at verse 41. Those who accepted the message and were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I've preached some sermons where the Lord in His sovereign graciousness has been pleased to use the sermon to bring someone to Himself. That's a great feeling. There's a couple times where I've preached sermons where several people from you know, reports I heard came to the Lord in one sermon. I was like, whoo! I've never <laughs> preached a sermon and had 3,000 people come to Jesus. So here we got the first megachurch in the world. They go from 100 people to 3,100 people like that. Boom. Megachurch. Thousands are now following Jesus. I mean, could you imagine? What would happen if God moved and suddenly 3,000 people were saved and wanted to come into our church? You know, we have to scrap everything. <laughs> Just the whole thing. We'd be like, alright, we've got to rebuild this whole thing. Sunday school's not going to work anymore. Our constitution doesn't work. We have to redo this whole church because it's just a completely different animal now. 3,000 people. How do you do church of 3,000 people? I don't even know. It's like, just add water. The water of the Holy Spirit. Boom. Church is born. Look how God used Peter. It's amazing. And he goes on to use him that way. Acts chapter 4. Peter preaches before the, the Sanhedrin. The same Sanhedrin that accused Jesus, Peter stands before them and boldly proclaims Christ. And they say, stop preaching in the name of Jesus or we're going to arrest you again. He says, who am I supposed to obey? God or you? That's pretty bold. And then in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans come to faith. And the church sends Peter out to see the Samaritans. And he is there for the Samaritan Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon those half-Jew, half-Gentile Samaritans. And then in Acts chapter 11, who is it that takes the Gospel to the Gentiles? Peter. And who is there when the Holy Spirit is poured out for the Gentile Pentecost? Peter. And so somehow he goes from zero to hero. Somehow he goes from the denier of Jesus to the proclaimer of Jesus. Somehow he changes from a spiritual failure to a spiritual father of thousands through the power of the Holy Spirit working in him. And how did he get from here to there? Well, let me ask you this. What is it that takes place between Peter's denial and Luke 22, and Peter's proclamation at Pentecost in Acts 2. What is it that takes place in between those two events? The cross of Jesus Christ changes everything. And through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, Peter is cleansed and changed and transformed through the Holy Spirit, which is poured out because Jesus died on the cross. And so it's through what Christ does that this man is, is transformed and set free. Through the cross. The cross can take the worst failures and, and change us into something powerfully useful for God. The blood of Jesus can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Think about how much Jesus loved him. Jesus is there at the Last Supper and he knows Peter's going to deny him and he still goes to the cross. And he knows, he's there when Peter denies him. He's there to hear the words coming out of Peter's mouth. I don't know anything you're talking about. And he still goes to the cross. And to think that Jesus knew and the Father knew everything I would ever do. All the ways I would fall short which are too many to recount. All the ways that we would fail the Lord in our lives. And Jesus still went to the cross. He still went to the cross. Have you ever heard of love like that? Even if I wasn't a Christian, I think I'd just fall on my knees and and weep. Because there's no such thing as love like that in this world. To give of yourself for people who stab you in the back in order to save them and transform them. This is only a divine love that could motivate something like this. And so through the power of the blood of Jesus, the most foul, failed sinners can be transformed into the powerful servants of God. Through the blood of Jesus, even failed Christians can be restored. And through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can become a new person. Because not only did Jesus crucified, he was He's died, He was buried, He was raised, He rose to the Father's right hand and He poured out the Holy Spirit. And that's the story of the book of Acts. Acts, in a nutshell, is the story of the Gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit spreading around the world. That's what Acts is all about. And that's what God, He uses broken vessels. He uses bent wheels like Peter and like you and like me. And as we submit ourselves humbly before the Lord, He uses us. And so my message to you this morning is, is just come back to the Lord. Wherever you are, however far you think you've gone, maybe you have some hang-up in your life that you have never been able to get past. You feel guilty for it all the time. You need to come to the cross and be forgiven. And just come back to the Lord. Maybe you've never come to the Lord before. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. You know, This is such an awesome Savior who would die for us. Come to Christ today. You know, cross that line in the sand that God has drawn in front of you. And He says, come, cross the line and follow Christ. You need to do that. You know, I I told them this in the first service. And I'm telling you, this is going to sound melodramatic and you're going to think I'm just sounding like a sort of amped up preacher. (laughs) Maybe I am. But honestly, I mean, I think I'm honest when I say this. That... I would be willing to die right now if I knew that by my death everyone in this room would come to know Jesus. You know, I'm like, we all got to die. We have to die for usually stupid things. Like, but if I could die and guarantee that you would all come to know this Savior, easy choice, I think. You know? And I just, I, I would die to see this church revived and to be awakened. Doesn't your heart just get all stirred up when you read about Peter reaching all these people for the Lord? And, you know, I, I read that and I'm just like, oh, I want to see that happen. I don't even have to be the guy. I just want to be there to watch it. I just want to see it happen on the South Shore. Lord, raise someone up. Anyone. And send them out and have them stand and let people come to Him like has happened before in New England during Great Awakenings. When George Whitfield stood in Boston Common and 40,000 people pressed in to hear the Gospel. And, and like in the days of 
Pentecost, thousands were saved. Thousands were saved. And I just I would love to see us awakened. I would love to see myself continually drawn out of my complacency and my comfort, which just seemed to be smothering at times to my faith. And so that's the message. Let's all come back to Jesus, starting with me. Let's all come back to Jesus and find the forgiveness through the cross and the power through the Holy Spirit to live a new life. And hey, how fitting is it that we're at the communion table here, huh? Because here, here we are to celebrate Jesus' death for us. It's because Jesus died that there is hope for a changed life. And so we, we take this bread which symbolizes His